Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the new speaker Kevin McCarthy stripping Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell of their seats on the House Intelligence Committee, arguing in a heated exchange with the reporter that it was not hypocritical to give George Santos a seat on committees because Swalwell had some connection to a Chinese spy and Schiff did something wrong when Nunez was the Hipsky House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Chair, although it was hard to follow his charges. Joining us is a former Republican staff director of the House Intelligence Committee, Mark Lowenthal, President Emeritus of the Intelligence and Security Academy and a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He has served as Assistant Director of Central Intelligence for Analysis and Production, Vice Chairman for Evaluation at the National Intelligence Council, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence, and Staff Director on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Hipsky. Dr. Lowenthal is the author of the Standard College Graduate School textbook on intelligence, Intelligence from Secrets to Policy, now in its ninth edition. Then we'll look into India's Prime Minister Modi's frantic efforts to stop the 1.4 billion people in the world's largest democracy from seeing a BBC documentary about him that exposes his role in the 2002 pogrom against Muslims in Gujarat at the time the Hindu nationalist Modi was the chief minister of the state. Joining us is Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia, and his latest book, The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. Then finally, we'll speak with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. We will discuss his latest article at the American Prospect, The Democrats' Green Investments Are Going to Republican States, and Biden's Reindustrialization of America, with the irony that although not one Republican voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, Green money is pouring into red states. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Mark Lowenthal, the President Emeritus of the Intelligence and Security Academy and a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He has served as Assistant Director of Central Intelligence for Analysis and Production, Vice Chairman for Evaluation, National Intelligence Council, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence, and Staff Director on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Dr. Lowenthal is the author of the Standard College Grade School Textbook on Intelligence, Intelligence from Secrets to Policy, 
now in its ninth edition. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Lowenthal. Thank you, Ian. So, Mark, it seems that the HIPSKI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence that you were staff director of, has become has it become irredeemably politicized now that the new Speaker McCarthy has stripped Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the being on the committee? Well, I, I think it actually became irredeemably politicized um, in the first uh, Congress under Trump in 2017, um, and it has been politicized ever since then when Devin Nunes was running it and then when Schiff was running it, and now this has just sort of exacerbated the problem with uh, McCarthy's decision not to seat um, Swalwell and, uh, and Schiff on the committee. It is, um, you know, my, my experience, and I, I've been, you know, I've known about these committees since they were formed back in the mid-70s. Um, there tends to be this odd um, asymmetry that when one of the committees is functional, the other is dysfunctional. The Senate committee right now is highly functional, and the House committee is highly dysfunctional. Well, in the uh, rather testy exchange that Speaker McCarthy had with a reporter who said, basically, how come you're stripping... Schiff and Swalwell, but you're allowing George Santos to sit on committees. And he got very upset about that. And then he went sort of on a rant and said that Schiff had done, you know, really bad stuff, which I I Mm -hmm. found it hard to follow, but it had a lot to do during the Devon Nunez era. But then he was much more specific in his attacks on Swalwell. He said that Swalwell had some kind of relationship with a Chinese spy and therefore he was disqualified from protecting the nation, nation's secrets. What, what do we know about that? Well, I mean, we don't know a lot about it, but apparently um, Swalwell had some sort of relationship. I don't mean an intimate relationship. I mean knowledge, personal knowledge of an individual named Fang who turned out was a Chinese agent. And my understanding is that at a certain point, the FBI briefed Pelosi when she was speaker and McCarthy when he was minority leader on the issue. Pelosi felt there was no reason there to remove Swalwell from the committee. McCarthy said there were lots of unanswered questions. And so that's basically all that we know. Um, Now, I will have to tell you, um, it is not unusual for foreign agents to try and recruit people on Capitol Hill. This doesn't mean it's right to be recruited. And if you think you're being recruited, you need to report it right away. And it's not always obvious that you're being recruited initially, and certainly not with the Chinese um, who are have a certain capability here. So um, so that was the issue with Swallow, that he was a security risk and therefore he should not be on the intelligence committee. Whether or not there's a there there, I don't know. But that's, that's, it's a different issue than with Schiff. And with Schiff also, a lot of it's personal. Schiff led the first impeachment effort against Trump on the Ukraine issue. And uh, Schiff was, was very much out there on, in the news giving lots of interviews. And so a, a lot of the issue with Schiff has to do with that and also has to do with some retribution. Um, The Democrats took Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Kosar off committees for things that they said about other members and other uh, other individuals. Um, And Nancy Pelosi would not allow Jim Jordan and another member to be on the January 6th committee. So, you know, this is this is part of the um, the sad state of affairs in the House of Representatives. Well, specifically in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, they were stripped of their committee assignments because they made death threats against fellow yes. members. That's yes, pretty absolutely. serious. <laughs> it's very serious. 
Um, it's I mean, yeah, it's absolutely serious. But but you know, for the Republicans at this point, and I, I will repeat, I was a Republican staff director. I was the first Republican staff director of the House Intelligence Committee. Um, but for the Republicans, all you know is that these people were taken off the committee, and we can get even. And it really makes, as I said, it makes the House Intelligence Committee very dysfunctional, which is unfortunate because um, you need a well-functioning intelligence committee to do proper oversight of the intelligence agencies. And unfortunately, a lot of that oversight is now going to fall to this investigative committee that Jim Jordan is heading up, that he's comparing to the church committee. It has no comparison to the church committee. And so I think in the House, intelligence is going to continue to be politicized, and it puts the intelligence agencies in a place they do not want to be. They do not want to be the objects of a political football match. Well, Jim Jordan's new committee investigating the government and uh, the weaponization of the government, as he, as he says, mm-hmm. he has a dog in that fight, doesn't he? Because yeah. he he made several calls or had several calls with Donald Trump on January the 6th, and then yeah. they're investigating him. So his motives are and, pretty uh, clear. But I have to say that the comparison to the church committee is so inapt. Now, the church committee didn't do everything right. Um, but the church committee's premise was have these have these agencies, CIA, NSA, and the others, follow the rules, follow the charter, follow the law, um, and not that they attack this group or that group. And Jim Jordan's investigation is about how have these agencies dealt with conservatives. So, I mean, you know, you already have the, the verdict before the trial. He's not going to come away saying, oh, they did fine. They, they were fine. They were totally within bounds. He's out there to prove a point. So you're not going to get a very um, unbiased hearing out of this. This is the counterpiece to the January 6th committee. But we've already had the Durham investigation at, at the DOJ, haven't we not? Yeah, Durham, and they turned up virtually nothing. Um, Durham, Durham looked into um, how the community had handled uh, the Russia investigation and didn't come up with anything. And Durham, this is, I think, I was counting the other day. Um, I think this is his third, it was his third stint as a special prosecutor looking at the intelligence community. And he is a Republican appointee, so he's not somebody who's going to roll over and play nice for the intelligence community. And he knows what he's looking at. And he and he was a, he wrapped up his, his investigation because he couldn't find anything. But that's not going to be sufficient at this point for Jordan and company. So looking at the Ukraine war, and of course, we learned today that, um, in fact, President Biden made an announcement that the mm-hmm. U.S. is sending Abrams tanks and Germany will now send, I think, 14 Leopard 2 tanks. Britain has already sent about the same. All told, right. there's a little over 50 tanks so far being pledged. Uh, the Ukrainians want 300, so it's way right. below their ask. But to my mind, Mark, it seems that Putin's best move at this point, since his military is performing so badly, and he's not really a military man, he's an intel guy, it seems to me that his best move is to influence the House Republicans to cut funds to oh, Ukraine. So, I, think that, I think that's one of his best opportunities. I, mean, I want to say something about Putin being an intelligence guy, as you put it. Yes, he was a KGB officer. He was lieutenant colonel in the KGB, which is not a very high rank. And he was posted to Dresden, which is not where you put your first rank officers in East Germany. 
in, during the Soviet occupation. You put them in Berlin. You do not put them in Dresden. So yes, he was a KGB officer, but we really shouldn't make too much of that. He was not a, a, um, a fast charger, a high flyer, whatever set of nouns, adjectives you want for that. But yes, he was in the KGB, but he wasn't super spy. And I think we tend to overrate that experience, except for the effect that it had on his psyche. So yes, I mean, obviously, if he can get the Republicans to stop um, funding the war in Ukraine, that creates problems. I mean, there are probably administrative ways around this. And McConnell will probably work with Biden to help that to make that happen. But yes, now this is the weak link in the system, without a doubt. So do you think there's an active measure campaign underway to, to do that? We know uh, that there are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene that are sympathetic to Putin. I don't know whether you could call it a pro-Putin caucus. You've also, on the influential Fox News personality, Tucker Carlson, seems to <laughs> to parrot Russian talking yeah. points. So, well, I mean, it, if the Russians are, are good at what they're doing and they're up to the usual game... Yes, of course, they're going to try to do what they can to influence people, making it look like it's American, American citizens, just like they did in 2016 election. You're not going to get a direct comment from a Russian. You're going to have people posing as Americans in various social media. And yes, I mean, of course, they're going to do that. That's part of that's part of how the game of international politics is played. And the Russians have shown a certain uh, capability in this. So that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, they will try and stir up people on, on the Republican right to, to say, why are we sending this money? We need money to, to I think the, the alternative is, is defending the, the Mexico border. Why are we defending Ukraine? We need to defend the Mexico border is the sort of the battle cry. So, yes, I, I think we can expect to see that. Um, I don't know if they have enough votes to stop things from happening. I think there's probably a fair number of Republicans on the House floor who are still in favor of aiding Ukraine. And if enough of them were to defect and vote with the Democrats, remember, McCarthy's only got five, a majority of five. Well, actually six. four, because this one Republican uh, congressman, uh, Till. Oh, right. Well, he's still alive, so he's still alive. Right. It's not <laughs> good. Have to be but is yeah, there but a no, connection between what we're talking about with McCarthy and, and the pro-Putin caucus in the House? I mean, where does he stand? Because he obviously, he, the argument's been made that the tail is wagging the dog, the freedom caucus, the right-wing radicals controlled him. He sold his soul to become the speaker. I don't think there's anything left he has to offer. I'm sure he promised people whatever it is they wanted to hear. But as I said, you know, he he has this tiny, tiny majority, and he only needs the defection of five or six Republicans who still want to fund Ukraine, which is not an inconceivable occurrence. And the anti-Ukraine supporters lose. So you know, he, he, doesn't have, he doesn't have a lot of margin to play with. When I was the staff director, the Republicans had, a, I think we had a majority of 12 or 15. And I will tell you, that was really tight. Even, even for the bills that I was responsible for, which was the two intelligence authorization bills, that was a really tight number. When you're down to four or five, you don't have a lot of room. And you can easily lose people and things go against you. I also, you know, I would, I would question how long he's going to be speaker. I give him a year tops. Having watched the House closely for, for decades now, I give him a year. And it was, you know, he agreed to the rule that any one member can, can uh, raise a motion to dismiss. So he's on very thin ice, and he knows it. So he really can't be very resistant. So 
Just in the last couple of minutes, Mark Lowenthal, the head of the CIA, Ambassador Burns, recently visited with Zelensky in Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And apparently Zelensky trusts Burns more than anybody in the U.S. government because Burns gave them the information, one, that Russia was going to launch the war when they did on the February the 24th, and two, he gave them the information that apparently the Russian priority was to take the Antonov airfield and paratro- mm-hmm. drop paratroopers in so they could capture Kiev and neutralize Zelensky. So what we're reading in the press is that what the U.S. government is trying to tell Zelensky is, you know, don't waste all your resources defending Bakhmut, you know, make attacks in the south. Now, that must presumably is tied in with uh, these tanks that have been promised, although they've, you know, if the Ukrainians want 300 and so far they're getting pledges for 50 that haven't arrived and Mm, people haven't been trained. So how do you see the U.S. role here in terms of advising? Clearly, the uh, Ukrainians have really good intelligence about where the Russians are because they've been targeting Russian troops and also Prigozhin's Wagner group with the high yeah, bars. Pres- yeah, presumably they, they've got people on the ground. And my understanding is that they've got, you know, dissident Chechens and Tatars and all kinds yes. of ethnic they have groups. People who hate Russia. And right. also when you pull back, like they did, you, you, you can leave what are called stay behind to keep reporting on what's happening, which is obviously very dangerous. And obviously the United States had very good intelligence about the Russian plan last February. And they, they you, and I will give the Biden administration tremendous credit for using that intelligence very, very effectively with Zelensky and with NATO and with the EU to create a united front against Russia. And Bill Burns, I think, is doing a superb job. It's, you know, it's important to remember that Burns was an ambassador to Moscow. He speaks Russian. He understands Moscow. He understands Putin probably than any other American policymaker. And so that gives us a tremendous advantage. And I think he's been doing a fabulous job as the director of the CIA. Um, and obviously he does have uh, Zelensky's confidence. He has the president's confidence. So obviously our intelligence has performed. You, know, you and I have, over the years have discussed lots of things. Intelligence has gotten wrong. Um, but this is one where U.S. intelligence has really been very, very effective. And that must also be driving Putin crazy. How do they know this? How do they know what my plans were? Where is my leak? Um, so that's, you know, he's got this other distraction um, in addition to the fact that he's, he's fighting a, a very unpopular, very unsuccessful war. So just in closing then, let's focus in on Putin. There's some concern that these tanks are escalating the war, and that's certainly what you're hearing from Moscow. And he's clearly Putin. He's not interested in any kind of peace deals the Ukrainians offered a peace plan through the UN and they Russians rejected it and repeated their crazy talking points about liberating Ukraine from Nazis, etc. Right, right. So is there any real concern, do you think, that Putin could lose it? I mean, if it's, well, how paranoid have, is he, do you think, and well, how much this, there's this escalation of, of sending battle tanks likely to... Well, I think you always have to be concerned about that. You can never be absolutely sure how somebody will react. Um, But I think the calculation was that a lot of his talk about nuclear weapons is bluff. I think it's bluff, personally, as somebody who 
used to analyze the Soviet Union for years and years and years. I think it's a bluff. Um, and, and there's not a lot he can do about that after that. I mean, the trade is already gone. He can't, he can't cut off the gas. The gas is already gone. He, he's not left with a lot of options. So he can bluster a lot. But unless he really wants to escalate things way out of hand, which I can't believe he wants to do because of the, the domestic cost, because of the fact that his military is really in severely bad shape right now, he's going to have to complain a lot and, and, and put up with it. I don't think he has a lot of options. I don't think he's irrational. I think he's rational by his own by his own nature, but I don't think he's going to start a third world war over over the tanks. I just I just don't see it. Now, but what what's his way out though? He's obviously banking on a big offensive, and he's trying to get throw a lot of bodies into the next uh, right. attempt. You know, they obviously they failed first time around, and he's doubling down. What happens well, if he fails? He doesn't have an end game. Unless he has a major military breakthrough, which is exceedingly unlikely, if he's just stuck with a grinding war, he doesn't have an end game. And so, what is he? What is he? Does he offer the status quo ante? All right, we'll just keep what we had before. You know, we'll keep Crimea and the pieces of Donetsk and Luhansk that we had before we we started the war. I mean, he doesn't. You know, Clausewitz advised in eight, in eighteen twenty one, no one, no war should be commenced without thinking through how you're going to win it. And obviously he had some very bad advice. He had some very bad intelligence. And now he has no, there's no exit ramp other than admitting defeat, which he cannot do. Now, but should we, another, should we give him an exit ramp? Well, what's the exit ramp? I mean, what, what do you offer him um, without hmm. seeming to reward him for aggression? Now, there's another possible, possible outcome here, that one day the the people underneath him have a meeting and say, well, Vlad, we had a meeting last night and you lost. You weren't there. They don't kill him. It's sort of like what happened to Khrushchev. And they oust him. The trouble is anyone who replaces him wouldn't have a very long shelf life politically if he just ended the war on less than successful terms. So the Russians have a real problem now. They're stuck. Well, it's always been frightening to me that you have combination of national security and organized crime in Russia, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And the fact that the matter is the Russian military is, is clearly uh, hollowed out. And they're yeah. the people that are in control and have custody of the nuclear arsenal. So that's what worries me more than anything. I think that's a reasonable concern. I do. And what can we do about it? Well, there's, nothing, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, we, we can't influence the Russian military. Although I, I would I would be trying to send them covert messages saying, hey, this guy is destroying your army. Why don't you think about another way out? Um, I would be playing that that message covertly to them if I could. Um, and you, there's nothing you're going to do about the somebody once compared Putin's Russia to the Soprano family. Basically, I don't care how much money you steal as long as I get my share. And uh, obviously, this this huge modernization program that he went on. Most of the money disappeared. It ended up in yachts in Cyprus, somebody said. So, you know, they ended up with a military that has been totally inefficient, totally embarrassing. So the, and the military, I'm sure, is um, angry about what's happened to them. So they're not, you know, they're, they're not a strong point for Putin either. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us, Mark. Uh, it's a grim thank picture, you. but a realistic one. And I appreciate it. 
Okay. Good talking to you. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Lowenthal, who's a president emeritus of the Intelligence and Security Academy and a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He served as assistant director of Central Intelligence for Analysis and Production, vice chairman for evaluation on the National Intelligence Council, deputy assistant secretary of state for intelligence and staff director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And Dr. Lowenthal is the author of the Standard College Graduate School Textbook on Intelligence, Intelligence from Secrets to Policy, now in its ninth edition. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into India's Prime Minister Modi's frantic efforts to stop the 1.4 billion people in the world's largest democracy from seeing a BBC documentary about him that exposes his role in the 2002 pogrom against Muslims in Gujarat. Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading, you're old enough to kill. But not for voting You don't believe in war But what's that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River has Bodies floating But you tell me Over and over and over again My friend I you don't believe We're on the eve of destruction Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include India Since 1980, India, Pakistan, and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Sumit Ganguly. Thank you. So there's a frantic effort underway on the part of India's Prime Minister Modi, who is trying to stop anybody in India from seeing this BBC two-part documentary that has been banned. It's been shown, apparently, in the communist-controlled state of Kerala. Students at the most prestigious universities in India have tried to show it, uh, and... uh, (laughs) The government uh, cut the um, electricity supply at JNU, the main university in New Delhi. And, of course, the saddest thing of all, Sumit, is that Elon Musk, this self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, has complied with India's request to Twitter to take down links to the documentary, and the same has happened with YouTube as well. So it's a pretty sad state of affairs, but there's a certain element of absurdity to it. I mean, can Modi really stop the people in India from learning about what happened in the Gujarat riots of 2002 when Modi was the governor of Gujarat? Um, No, I'm afraid not. Um, As it is, enterprising journalists years ago Um, produced detailed accounts of what transpired in Gujarat. And um, the indifference, if not the actual complicity of the government at the time in uh, the pogrom uh, that uh, took place uh, in Gujarat, Um, much of this is already common knowledge in India. And um, so... This is like simply trying to prevent the tide uh, from coming in. 
um, uh, you know, or choose your metaphor, uh, keeping one's finger in the dike. Um, this is, it, it, it's, f- frankly speaking, it's a fool's errand. But what happened in Gujarat and Modi's complicity being the BJP party, the Indian Nationalist Party head, now and then with representing them as the governor of Gujarat, he was banned from coming to the U.S. by the State Department until he got elected, was he not, over what appears to be concrete evidence. Um, That is correct. Um, Owing to the pressure that was brought to bear um, uh, by a range of human rights groups in this country and civil society activists, when he was the chief minister of Gujarat and he wanted to visit the United States, he was formally denied a visa by the U.S. State Department. Subsequently, the State Department relented when he became the Prime Minister of India in 2014. And I talked to several officials at the time, and they said, well, he is the legitimately elected Prime Minister of India, and uh, while we may have some reservations about his past, uh, we have to respect the, the verdict of the people of India who elected him in a free and fair election. And we have to continue our relationship with India. And hence, uh, we are dispensing with the visa ban. Well, some of the uh, opposition politicians are trying to get the documentary seen in the country. Um, Mahua Moitra among them. And he posted the link saying, here's the link, watch it while you can. And then, of course, uh, what happened shortly thereafter was the, that uh, <laughs> you could go to the link, but there was no documentary. So it seems that the Indian government's censorship mechanisms are working overtime. They are working overtime, and it does not surprise me that Mohamoitro, uh, who is a firebrand politician, from my home state of West Bengal um, and a member of the Trinamool Congress, um, a local political party which is trying to go national, um, uh, posted uh, the link. She's highly educated. She is quite vociferous in her views and her opposition uh, to Modi. Um, She is uh, extremely well-educated. She has a degree from Mount Holyoke College here in the United States and has been a thorn in her in his side uh, for uh, quite some time because of her outspokenness. But um, uh, India has a vast censorship apparatus in part derived from British colonial rule. Ironically, um, many of the, uh, the uh, legal strictures that exist on the books Um, hark back to a colonial era when Indian nationalists faced uh, the wrath of these measures. And uh, it is particularly ironic that they are being applied uh, with such vigor against free India's citizens. Um, And sadly, the irony is lost lost on this government. So 
What do you think the students are going to do, particularly at JNU, which is a, the prestigious university in Delhi, where Tuesday night the government shut down of screening they were going to have in the cafeteria, I think it was, where they cut off power and the internet. So it's sort of a cat and mouse thing, but I assume that there are copies of it circulating. I have little or no doubt that there are copies circulating, and friends of mine in India uh, have been using um, virtual uh, private networks uh, to watch it. They're sharing it with friends. And the irony is, again, that by drawing so much attention to this, uh, this documentary, Modi is actually making it more popular. Um, it's when something, when a government goes hammer and tongs to deter or prevent a uh, population from seeing something, it becomes that much more intriguing. And people who otherwise might have ignored this documentary now are feel compelled to look for it and see what could be that disturbing or distressing to Modi and his government that it needs to be kept outside their purview. So what does this say about Modi himself? I mean, I've always found him a troubling figure because he's a religious fanatic and, you know, whatever religion you belong to when you become a zealot, it's disturbing, particularly if you enter politics and in this case become the prime minister of the world's largest democracy. So he's obviously egotistical. He's peculiar. He's a self-proclaimed celibate. But what does it say to you? I mean, I don't understand why. I mean, he, ha he has obviously has political support amongst the nationalists because he is a Hindu nationalist and he has political support in the, in the diaspora here in the United States. I don't know what, what percentage, but it appears to be, be at least on the Indian right. I mean, he's a, he's a right-winger, right? That's a fact, isn't it? There's no question about it, that um, his uh, politics are uh, firmly on the right, that he's a believer in a form of ethnic chauvinism, um, and uh, he has, uh, in part, uh, ridden to victory on the basis of that ethnic chauvinism, though not entirely on that. He is also engaged in a range of populist policies, um, which have appealed to segments of the population. And in the first election, um, uh, he was elected against a backdrop of almost complete disarray and widespread corruption on the part of the previous government, the United Progressive Alliance, led by uh, the once venerable Congress party, which had brought India its independence, but today is a shrunken shell of its former self, um, uh, ideologically incoherent, uh, uh, politically irrelevant, and uh, lacking adequate leadership. Uh, Modi has exploited all these shortcomings to very good effect um, and has offered an alternative vision of India. Um, I don't happen to share that vision, 
but uh, there's no question about it that Modi has very adroitly and deftly and skillfully sketched out a very different vision of India than the one, uh, than the kind of uh, uh, anemic and uh, rather uh, diffuse uh, uh, ideology uh, of Congress. And Modi's vision has appealed to large numbers of Indians uh, who've been taken in um, by the uh, scenario that he has sketched out of muscular, um, developed uh, India, where the majority community will be privileged. So he's also making a move against the Supreme Court, not not unlike what Prime Minister Netanyahu is doing in Israel, where he has a vested interest in weakening the Supreme Court and and having the government have more control over it. In other words, limiting the independence of Israel's Supreme Court. And hundreds of thousands have demonstrated against it. And of course, Netanyahu's vested interest is he's trying to stay out of jail. What's going on, though, with Modi in terms of his efforts to have political control over the Supreme Court, which is very independent, and judges in India elect themselves? It's a collegial operation. So he's trying to break that. What's going on there? Um, the Supreme Court has a long history of being autonomous, of being independent, and of um, expanding its writ um, uh, and uh, Modi uh, finds that most inconvenient, um, that uh, he wants to curb the independence of the Supreme Court. He wants to uh, limit the ambit of the Supreme Court and um, uh, wants a somewhat supine uh, Supreme Court uh, because it's the ultimate arbiter of the law in India. Uh, and you have a chief justice who has shown elements of independence. And um, uh, to Modi, this is threatening um, to his government uh, and uh, could um, um, potentially upset his apple cart. And it comes as no surprise to me that Modi wants to constrain uh, the court in any fashion that he can. So in the last couple of minutes then, Sumit, since you work on India's national security, obviously India is an important ally of Russia. I don't know whether you say they're sitting on the fence. It seems they're more pro-Russian in, in terms of what Russia's doing in Ukraine. Of course, there is support in the global south for Russia. At least there's not much criticism. In India's case, the excuse appears to be that they rely on Russian weapons for their military. But because the Russian military is performing so poorly, is India having any second thoughts about reliance on Russian military equipment? It'll be very interesting to see if the Indians are having second thoughts. Uh, at the moment, given the structure of civil-military relations in India, no serving officer is going to make a statement um, that suggests that they have misgivings about Russian weaponry. But as some of the people who are currently in office retire and feel less constrained about speaking out about uh, their concerns about the performance of Russian 
um, uh, weaponry in um, uh, in the in Ukraine. Um, uh, it'll be fascinating to see uh, if they air um, some of their uh, concerns and doubts and misgivings. Uh, it is a fact that anywhere between 60 to 70 percent of India's weaponry uh, are of Soviet or Russian origin. That is a fact. And that acts as an important constraint on India's ability to forthrightly uh, criticize Russia for its uh, vicious and cruel actions in Ukraine. But is there, in terms of the Indian public opinion, support for Ukraine? I mean, obviously, not only does India get their weaponry from the bulk of their weaponry from Russia, they're also getting discounted oil at the moment uh, on the cheap. So what do you know about Indian public opinion? Because it's often said that the global south is in favor of what Russia's doing, and I've never been able to get a real clear picture on that. When we speak of public opinion, for all practical purposes, we are really talking about Indian elite opinion. And we have not seen any reliable, valid surveys uh, of Indian elite opinion any time in the recent past on this issue. And uh, recently a poll was published by Morning Consult, and it was utter rubbish. They polled a thousand people. They didn't reveal where these thousand people are located. Um, They didn't reveal the socioeconomic status of these people. And they made inferences about India's population, which is close to 1.4 billion now, from that thousand um, sample poll, which was, and unfortunately, it got widely reported. I criticized it heavily, saying you cannot make any meaningful inferences because of the small sample size um, and our uh, ignorance about the socioeconomic characteristics of those polled. So we don't have reliable and valid polling of Indian elite opinion, but anecdotal evidence suggests that there are significant divisions. Well, Sumit Ganguly, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for this opportunity, and once again. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include India Since 1980, India, Pakistan, and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. Connecticut Bree Station Breaking Back, looking to the irony that although not one Republican voted for Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, green money is pouring into red states.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is The Democrats' Green Investments Are Going to Republican States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson. Always good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it is an irony to think that not one Republican voted for the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And yet, I'm sure they're all going to be taking credit for the investments that are pouring into red states as a result of the IRA. Yeah, well, the, the, the real acid test here, uh, the Wall Street Journal had a list of the 10 congressional districts that had received the largest investments of clean energy facilities, be they wind farms or uh, electric battery factories or uh solar uh, energy uh, facilities. Uh, and the, the, the district which was had gotten the fifth most such investments since the IRA uh, authorized all kinds of tax credits for clean energy facilities like those uh, is in Bakersfield. And the Congress member there is a guy named Kevin McCarthy. So Oh, we shall see how he uh, how he finesses this. Uh, he clearly, I think, is quite capable of, the, you know, the absurdity of taking credit for, uh, you know, uh, any new facilities there, even though they're there because of an act uh, whose party uh, to a person opposed, uh, uh, you know, was opposed to. But there is a geographical component, is there? I mean, some of the the yeah. southwest sunbelt states have the sun and other states have yeah, the wind. There's and and beyond that, you know, these uh, all these kinds of facilities, factories, wind farms, uh, uh, solar energy uh, facilities uh, take up a lot of space, which means essentially they're located in relatively rural areas. They're certainly not located in the midst of major metropolitan areas. And given the kind of polarization that we're experiencing uh, these days, and actually, this is the kind of polarization that exists across the developed economies of the world, uh, with rural areas being, uh, you know, more more right wing, and the metropolitan areas being uh, more to the left. Uh, it's the right wing places which are getting the facilities, uh, uh, which are now, you know, springing up and kind of beginning to, in 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 their own way, uh, bring clean energy and. Uh, reindustrialization to the United States, but it's going on in red America. So your article, Harold, mentions that Bob Kuttner has an article in the February print issue of the American Prospect about America's return to industrial policy by virtue of what Biden has achieved with these clean energy legislation, the IRA, semiconductors, the chip war with China, etc., and, and infrastructure legislation, which, of course, was passed on a bipartisan basis, uh, albeit a slimmed-down version. So is Biden going to take credit for the president who's turned things around from, you know, creating a rust belt through neoliberal policies and which only benefited Chinese peasants and Wall Street? So do you think it's time for Biden to 
enunciate what this new policy is? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he will, because I mean, you know, since he seems to be planning on running for re-election, this has got to be one of his claims, and it's got to be a claim for the Democrats in general, uh, running in swing districts and swing states. Uh, you know, if the the theory being, I guess, if your local economy is significantly improved by virtue of of these three kinds of these three bills that you you cited um you know uh do you know that it's the democrats essentially who have improved your local economy and that does that uh mitigate the fact that it's uh you know largely oriented towards clean energy which you tend to believe is some kind of woke conspiracy so um you know it 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 creates uh perhaps more of a battleground as it were uh, for the allegiance of at least some of those voters who might normally, in the recent sense of normally, vote Republican. So we shall, we shall see. We shall see what the political implications of all this uh, will be. And, you know, if the Democrats need a tutorial on this, it should be given by the Democratic senator in Ohio, Sherrod Brown, who for years has been the only Democrat elected statewide in Ohio, and he's up again next year, I should add. Yeah, with a uh, young challenger did. that uh, the Republicans are going to pour a ton of money in. Yeah, but of course he's already faced young challengers before in one, so we shall we shall see how that goes. Uh, uh, but Sherrod's, uh, you know, long-term opposition to the corporate and Wall Street-dominated trade policies and his long-term advocacy of industrial policy is what has, uh, you know, enabled him to win re-election in a in a state that's getting steadily uh, more Republican. And he, he should give tutorials to the rest of the Democrats now that they've passed these bills as to, you know, what he's done and how they can do it. And indeed, uh, what you've just described in Sherrod Brown would indicate that corporate America is going to pour a ton of money into his opponent, right? I mean, he's, he's one of the few champions of the working class and champions of unions, in our politics, uh, the short answer—the short answer to that is yes. I'm afraid they will. Uh, the, you know, uh, uh, the only saving grace for him, not for the rest of us, is that they're going to pour a ton of money into <laughs> a whole lot of campaigns. But his will certainly be one of them. But you point out that one of the beneficiaries of the, of the money that Biden got uh, allocated in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is obviously misnamed, but nevertheless, I guess they had a reason for that. You talk about the BMW's mm-hmm. Spartanburg plant in Greer, South Carolina, and they're going to invest a billion dollars, apparently, into making uh, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. The beneficiaries of all of this money are working people, aren't they? So isn't this a way to sort of reverse the capture of working people by the Republican Party, which is... You know, Trump, it is Trump's I mean, great that, success. That its, yeah, that was not its stated intent, but that it could be its actual effect. And now, I mean, working people is a large category, uh, and I can conceive of no way in hell that the Democrats are ever going to carry South Carolina in particular. But you know, in swing states and swing districts, uh, you only need to move, you know, a relatively small percentage of the electorate with this. And this could indeed do that. Um, if not South Carolina, then certainly parts of Ohio and Indiana and 
uh, and Michigan and, uh, and, and a host of, uh, a host of other states and, uh, more to probably even more so other congressional districts. And what about Arizona? Because that's a Sunbelt state that's very competitive. And as you know, the loser for the governor's race, Carrie Lake, still hasn't, still not conceded. And there's an interesting right. situation now that uh, Ruben Gallego, the congressman, is now running for Kirsten Sinema's seat, and she recently Correct. declared herself an independent. So that's going to be a well, Arizona, as you, yeah, Arizona, as you just suggested, is complicated enough even without this this factor added in. If it's a three-way race, it gets uh, it, it gets very complicated. Though Kirsten Sinema certainly doesn't deserve the votes of 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 any you know any mentally conscious Democrat. So we shall see. But yes, it certainly will affect uh, development in uh, in a state like Arizona. Uh, certainly solar will up its game there. And it's certainly a state uh, where you might see new factory development. So it would certainly be a factor in a state like Arizona. So how does this move on the part of Biden, for which he's still not taking credit, but you think he may eventually take credit for the reindustrialization of the United States? You you point out the analogies with the New Deal. So what happened then in terms of the New Deal programs consolidating or increasing FDRs and the Democrats' control in power? Because that's the longest run we've ever had of uh, democratic control of all branches right. of government, except the Supreme well, Court, I might uh, By add. the way, I should point out that Biden has begun uh, to take credit for some of these things, and the most notably the bridge over the Ohio River connecting Kentucky to Cincinnati. Uh, uh, he was there uh, even with Mitch McConnell. So I would expect he'll take credit. Now, what the New Deal did, the New Deal was many things. Uh, and one of the things it was, was an attempt to bring up uh, the bottom uh, of the American economy in a regional way. That's why the first federal minimum wage law, which uh, was enacted in 1938 under Roosevelt, uh, really did more uh, for some of the beleaguered states of the South than it did for the states of the North. Similarly, uh, the New Deal had developed economic development policies for the sort of the left-behind regions, particularly of the South in that in, in that period, but also the West. I mean, the Tennessee Valley Authority was intended to provide cheap electrical power to uh, like seven southern states, which a lot of which were not yet electrified. Uh, and uh, a number of dams in, in the Mountain West uh, also had that effect uh, in those states. And all of that helped cement. I mean, it was just one of many factors, but it helped cement the uh, political base of the New Deal uh, in Democratic votes. And uh, um, this was a conscious policy. Now, I would add that Ronald Reagan rewarded his base by uh, in the huge increases uh, in defense spending, which 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 rose by like 25 percent while he was president, locating all the new uh, aerospace and armament factories in, in the Sun Belt, which had historically uh, a lot of it, particularly in the traditional South, been Democratic, but was moving in a Republican direction anyway, ever since Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. Um, and Reagan helped cement this development by uh, the spending he directed to 
the Sun Belt states. So now the Democrats sort of have a chance with uh, swing states and swing voters to see if if they can pull this off uh, to the extent that the Republicans want to play culture war politics, which often seems the only kind of politics they want to play. That's that's what they're up against. But the Democrats can at least cite specific economic improvement, and they will be able to do this in 2024 uh, in, in a number of these regions. So we will see how that goes. So in the last couple of minutes, though, is there any possibility that the sort of anti-union bias in the South or almost reflexive anti-unionism in the South will be undermined? Probably not, unfortunately. You know, um, when you look at uh, where the uh, companies like uh, the European car makers, as you cited BMW, Volkswagen, uh, uh, and uh, and Japanese, uh, and, and, and Nissan, and others, when they come to the United States and open their factories, they open them in the South because uh, those are non-union states, right-to-work states, uh, and states where they can actually count on the local political establishment to help them oppose uh, unionization, which uh, happened in uh, Chattanooga when the auto workers at the VW plant uh, tried to unionize, you know, and even Airbus, the uh, aerospace company that's European, that's French and German, has opened its factories in the South. And a lot of the traditional American manufacturers, the auto companies, when they're now that they're looking at putting, uh, you know, uh, factories for electric cars around the country, some of them are still in, you know, the Michigan proximate parts of the United States, but more of them are in the South and they're there because the labor is cheap and it will remain very difficult to unionize. There had been some talk initially of the legislation that the you know uh, the three bills we're talking about, uh, including uh, like making uh, electric, the you know there's a there's a premium to purchasers of electric vehicles, and there was a proposal to have a, a even more of a premium if you bought your electric vehicle not just domestically but in a union from a union uh, a fa- unionized factory. And that, that, unfortunately, didn't get enough votes, and so it dropped by the wayside. Uh, it was, that would have helped. Uh, absent that, I don't really see much help for, uh, in the short run for, for bringing up uh, pay and benefits and things like that for workers in the South. Well, Harold Myerson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is The Democrats' Green Investments Are Going to Republican States. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half